The beautiful singing has certainly lifted our spirits and encouraged us in ways truly noble and divine in character. To think about singing of God's amazing grace, the powerful love with which He loved us, and the marvelous order that He has set in place that we can one day look forward to singing around the marvelous throne of heaven forevermore. As was already mentioned in the announcements, how joyous an occasion it is on the first day of the week to come together. We do wish to remember and think of those that are ill and sick and hope that days will soon be better for them. As we have opportunity today, though, to look into the Word of God, we continue a series of studies that we began some four weeks ago today in which we were looking at an overview of the books of the New Testament. As we began that series and have continued until this point, we noticed first the powerful nature of the division of the Word of God. Understanding the four gospel accounts are followed by the single book of New Testament history, the book of Acts. Following that are 21 epistles. And finally, the book of Revelation, the book of New Testament prophecy. As we have journeyed to this point, we laid emphasis upon the majestic life of our Savior, the only perfect life ever lived. And by following that, the appropriation of its benefits and blessings to us in the book of Acts. As the church was established, we saw its explosive growth, in which not only in that book but in Ephesians, we came fully to face the exquisite and eternal power of that body. Also, in Romans as well as Galatians, we have seen an emphasis laid upon God's power to save through a system of obedient faith. For wasn't it Paul who proclaimed, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1 verse 16. Following that, we noticed in two Corinthian epistles the nature of a congregation facing problems, and not just one, but a host of them. But yet, as they heard the words of Paul's inspired instructions and implemented them in their lives, they made the proper repentance and brought themselves fully to appreciate that what was the past was the past, and they could look forward to a bright and shining work with a blessed Savior indeed. That's, however, as far as we have now made it, and today we have the opportunity to march a bit further. We take up our study with the, with the Philippian letter this morning, beginning at that point and, in fact, seeing where we may ultimately find ourselves at the close of our allotted time today. In the book of Philippians, we encounter a four-chapter book in the core and heart of the New Testament, and perhaps if you were to poll Christians worldwide, I wouldn't be shocked if fully three-quarters of those, if asked what their favorite book of the New Testament is, probably would say Philippians. In fact, it is the book that can so buoy our hearts upward when times are hard, when difficulties surround us, when the horizon looks clouded with the things that the world may throw in our direction, in our way. For you see, Paul wrote this book while he himself was in a Roman prison, he had not the liberty and freedom that he one might desire and wish, but yet throughout this book the key theme and the key element is joy in Christ, and that is unmistakable. Eighteen times either the word joy or the word rejoice occurs in this short book of four chapters. Here we find an individual suffering in the extreme under Roman persecution and yet could write about a brighter day that was awaiting him and a day to which he looked forward and a life that would not be overcome and dredged into the darkness of iniquity and sin by what went on around him. 
In verse, chapter 2, verse 14, in fact, in another bright statement, he said, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. May we appreciate even today that when we are so tempted to focus so much attention on my problems and the things that have come my way, that I should remember others are suffering as well, and that God can and will provide a means of thoroughfare and ultimate victory. Returning to chapter 1, we might well notice some key elements in our time this morning about what can make that joy. I suspect all of us know that the Christian life should be a life of joy and happiness, but in a more practical way, how do I make myself that way, or how do I allow God to make my life a joyful and happy existence? Let's notice a few things along our way to help answer that question. In Philippians 1, beginning in verse number 10, we in fact ask this question, what are you full of? Perhaps you and I have heard others make statements about being full of things that aren't quite so good. But notice, what did Paul say the Philippians were full of? Notice he made note that that which had been approved for them was that which was excellent. And furthermore, that they were encouraged to fill their lives with things that were righteousness and nobility and excellency. One of the first elements that can help us to be the powerful figure we can be for the cause of the Savior is to fill my life and for you to fill yours with that which is excellent by God's description. Notice that when Paul did that for himself and encouraged that in the lives of others, the following kinds of statements are now found. In Philippians 1.16, Paul said, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. He had ordered his life in a way to defend to all points and in all fashions the nature of that gospel when it was threatened and when others had chosen to in fact speak evil things of it. In Philippians 1 verse 20, we learn here that Paul could even make this rather vivid description of his own life, a life filled with joy. Could he not say in that verse and the one that follows, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How is that a good thing, Paul? Note verse 20. Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or whether it be by death. Paul said, it is immaterial. The Lord will be magnified by my life. If it requires my death, so be it. But if God shall permit me to live, it shall be by the way I live. That should be a testimony that is the guiding force behind all of our lives day by day, isn't it? As that chapter goes onward, in verses 27 to 29, Paul could now bring each of us to recognize that life is not always the rosy, primrose pathway that we might wish. He said, just as surely as you and I believe, we should understand that by believing we're called to suffer for His name. May we understand that suffering is a necessary accompaniment to the character of faithful living for the cause of the Master. Satan will see to it. He is a roaring lion walking about though or seeking those whom he may devour, First Peter 5a. And as such, when you and I live godly, we will not live in a pleasing fashion to him. No wonder that allows Paul to move into the second chapter and call the following things to our attention. That godly living that we mentioned earlier, that living that is in fact joyous living, is not selfish in its nature. In verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2, Paul there says, Let each one esteem others better than himself. 
as you look on the things of others, it's not with an eye to steal from them. You are concerned about their well-being. And we're concerned about the things that have come their way. And if we are able to assist, or if we're able to edify or provide encouragement, we look forward to the opportunities for doing that. And as we mentioned, joyous living, it is humble in its character. Beginning in verse 5 of Philippians 2 and continuing all the way to verses 10 and 11, we read of that beautiful Philippian hymn, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Joyous living is humble living, recognizing that if the mind which was in Christ is to be in us, Christ humbly went to that cross. Ought not we then in humility seek never to presumptuously exalt ourselves above God or above the Lord, or even recognizing in arrogance and pride above others? No wonder he could then say in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As that chapter concludes, beginning in verses 18 and following, we have reference made to two very special individuals to Paul. On the one hand was a young man named Timothy. We know well that Paul highly complimented him in saying, I have no man like-minded as he who will naturally care for your estate. That is a dramatic statement about the character of Timothy. Among all the individuals and companions whom Paul knew, he said, I have nobody like Timothy who will be compassionate and caring and truly concerned about you Philippians. Later he mentioned Epaphroditus, who also was one who had reached the point of death nearly, and yet God blessed him with a return to health, but Paul noted the Philippians were concerned about him. Chapter 3. Might we notice in that chapter, Paul begins by first discussing, at least briefly, the attributes of himself that would have led to a greatness in terms of Jewish consideration. After all, his pedigree was royal indeed. He was of, of the stock of Benjamin. He was an Hebrew. He was truly an Israelite. But what did that mean to Paul? Maybe you and I can think questions like that. You may have the finest family heritage of all, but from the perspective of eternity, what does that mean? When we stand before God, can I claim interest to heaven based on what my dad did, what my grandfather did, what my mother may or may not have done? Absolutely not. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God, to quote Romans 14, 12. And thus Paul very quickly says this, beginning in verse 7 of Philippians 3, What things were gained to me, I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul, all of that royal pedigree you could list, what does it mean to you? Nothing. That is not what will gain me entrance to heaven. What does mean something to you, Paul? Verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
Paul knew his citizenship, verse 20, was in heaven. Where's your citizenship? You and I should understand that though we may be natural citizens of this great country known as the United States of America, as devout Christians, our real eternal citizenship is, present tense, is in heaven. No wonder then as chapter 4 starts, we are led to appreciate in other practical ways how we can go about this godly living, being full of that which will make God proud and happy. Notice a few things we can quickly state. Verse number 4, perhaps a key thought in the whole book. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. There's two occurrences among the 18. To have a rejoicing spirit that has the following concept in mind. Verse 6, be careful for in nothing. Notice, you and I are to be prayerful. Laying our burdens and our troubles and our cares upon the shoulders of the one who can deal with them. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests with thanksgiving be made known unto God. Next verse, what's the result? And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Turning it over to God will lead to peacefulness in life here. Note verse 8, we aren't finished. Just as surely as that beautiful element of godly living has its means in humility and in the other things we've listed, proper thinking has a role to play. Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What do you think about moment by moment throughout the course of the day? Are there times of idleness when we allow our minds to wander into the dark dredges of iniquity and things that are improper? We should do better. We should strive to think on these kinds of matters in Philippians 4a, and if so, our life will become filled with those things that are in fact of godliness in its character. In verse 11, we go on to this. Here was a man in prison who nonetheless could say, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Are you content? Is it such that you're always wishing for a larger bank account, more cars, a bigger house, and more money? Or do you realize the blessing of God with respect to what currently is there and that he will add to it if you will only serve him first? Paul knew about contentment. Here was a man in a prison can say, I am content. Two verses later in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Perhaps one final comment from verse 19. Where do you and I find all of our needs met? Paul said, the God of heaven through Christ shall supply them. Maybe you and I fail far too often when we think, I have done it with these hands. Or by my own back-breaking labor, I've done it. God expects us to work indeed. Remember, he said to work out your own salvation, but might we never forget, the great giver of heaven provides them. He allows us the opportunity to do the things that we do. Do we bring him glory as we do those things? The chapter closes with a majestic statement of verse 22. Saints even in Caesar's household. Here was imperial Rome, a place so opposed to the gospel it would seem, and yet by the lives of faithful Christians even, it had infiltrated the palace in Rome. 
Doesn't that speak a great deal about the influence your life and mine can have? As we illustrate through the way we live, others will take note. Others will be tempted to ask questions and perhaps to learn. Paul also wrote the Colossian letter. The next book we have opportunity to consider as well. Just as was the case with Philippians, this too was one of his prison epistles, written while he was in a Roman prison. It too consists of four chapters. Notice, though, the theme is very different. Whereas it was joy through Christ in Philippians, this time it is simply the nature of the Christ of the church. Christ in this book is lifted to the very zenith of characterization. He is very carefully noted to be the center pen and hub of all that's noble and right. And that should include your life and mine. Let's begin that journey through the book in verse 5 of the opening chapter. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Many things could be concluded from that short verse alone. First, where is your hope in mine? Is it for a happy retirement in the golden years of life? It should go far beyond that. Our hope ought ultimately to be in heaven and nowhere else. For if we've missed there, we've missed it all. And where do we read of that hope? In the words of the gospel. It doesn't come in dreams and small, still voices. It doesn't come in other kinds of trances and various hallucinations. It comes in the gospel. May we thus be diligent students of that word to learn how to reserve our place in that golden climb called heaven. In Colossians 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, we encounter the order given to us to walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing. There is an all-seeing eye watching us. There's a song in our book by, that goes by that title. That all-seeing eye knows when we are walking worthily according to the premise we've stated when we made that confession prior to our baptism. I believe Jesus Christ with all my heart to be the Son of God. Do I live like I believe that? If so, then I should walk worthy unto the Lord in all-pleasing. As chapter 1 goes on, quickly Jesus ascends the character of the discussion and really never departs from it. In fact, in verse 14, it is through his blood our sins are cleansed and we have redemption. The previous verse, it is his kingdom into which we're translated. Note verse 18, after stating that he is the creator and the very one through whom all things are made and consist, we have this majestic statement of verse 18. He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. What a ter terrific statement about the church. Christ is its head. And it is that body that brings glory and honor to God. Perhaps seen in words that follow in chapter 1 like this. What are the benefits? Reconciliation. You and I as sinners were apart from him. We in fact were destined for an eternity separate and distinct from where he is. And yet we were reconciled by the cross. Verse 22. Reconciled unto God so that we can call him our father. And entertain in our life the hope of an eternal home in heaven. That's an overwhelming statement isn't it? The natural benefits in a practical way for us. Note verse 27. Christ in you the hope of glory. Your life and mine should be an open book testifying to everybody the nature of a man that died 2,000 years ago. And not just any man. He was the Son of God. And as such, it's only through his life that we can one day be with God. 
John 14, verse 6. Not only that, note Colossians 2, verse 3. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. It's something that we ought never to forget, that knowledge and education is valuable, and we often encourage it on our children. But might we make perhaps the obvious observation? There is a type of education far more significant than secular, far more important than the modern common day. It is the fact that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. If we allow our children to grow up bereft of that knowledge, we have robbed them of the greatest single knowledge in all of existence, the knowledge of the Savior. Thus, though we may encourage them to go to school and ensure that they do go and do their work, may we educate them in this. Make sure they never miss Bible classes, that they understand the nature of worship services and how the Holy Scriptures can lead them to an eternity in heaven. That's the greatest of all knowledge. In Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, and earlier today, that was read in our hearing. Notice in verse 10, you are complete in him. Doesn't that have a powerful idea behind it? That means to that person who does not know Christ, that person's not complete. There's a segment of his or her life that's absent and can never be filled any other way. Only can you and I be whole, W-H-O-L-E, if we have Christ in our life. No wonder the world is so holy. And notice, it's not H-O-L-Y. It's W-H-O-L-Y in the sense of incomplete. Might we notice that we need to have Jesus in our life all the time. Continuing Colossians 2, we notice the thrust then of the fact the old law is not how completeness comes. Verse 12 of Colossians 2, the old law was nailed to the cross. We have a new covenant, a better covenant, a perfect covenant. And it's by way of that covenant that we can be made whole. As that chapter closes, the warning is made about will worship in verse 23. Not worshiping how we might want, but worshiping by the prescriptions and mandates of holy writ. For is it not still true that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth? John 4, 24. With Jesus as the center pen of life, chapter 3 naturally follows. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Our primary affections won't be then on this earth. It'll be in heaven. And we shall do what is required to please God so that we can make it to that beautiful and eternal place. As Colossians 3 quickly tells us, there are various things that then must be put outside of our life, things we do not do. We must mortify, verse 5, put to death various practices. But quickly... In verses 8 and following, there are things we must add to our life. Things like mercy, humility, love, patience, and forbearance. We each should strive to grow day by day with greater and greater aspects of these to the point that we shall be described as a new man. Verses 13 and following. And then is it not true in verses 16 and 17? The recollection of this phrase that has so often been a clue for you and me in our studies on Wednesday evening indeed. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by him. Notice Christ again, the center pen of it all. Everything done in word or deed should be pleasing to him. 
As the chapter closes, various relationships are described. Husband to wife, parents to children, servants to masters, all with a desire to help us live godly day by day. Chapter 4 is all that remains. And in that chapter, we learn about the practical matter of our speech. What kind of language do you and I use? Is it described in the words of verse 5? It should be. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Does your speech have a savoring influence upon others? Something that edifies and encourages? Or is it like a box of bad salt that does nothing but taste bad and brings about nothing good? That shouldn't describe the words that I use or yours. As that chapter reaches to its conclusion, a number of precious individuals are mentioned by Paul as he makes note of the faithfulness with which they had encouraged him. And with that, the curtain closes on the Colossian letter, and it leads us to the First Thessalonian letter. In the First and Second Thessalonian epistles, we have eight chapters total, but the central key idea is a rather easy one to appreciate. Let's take a quick view of these two books, understanding that what we see is still a question that presses upon the mind of many, many individuals today. In Acts the 17th chapter, when Paul came to Thessalonica, he and his companions founded this congregation. And this letter and the one that follows were the first two, it would seem, that Paul wrote of all the letters that he did write of the New Testament. As he addressed the church in Thessalonica in verse 3 of the opening chapter, he makes a triple observation of facts which still escape the mind of far too many. He made note of the three great truths of Christianity, faith, hope, and love. But notice there was something that went with them. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. May we never forget that faith has to be accompanied with works and that love must in fact recognize the labor that goes with it. If we take one and try to divorce it from the other, we trod where the Bible does not. That chapter quickly tells us, 1 Thessalonians 1, about a church that had received the gospel not only in power and the Holy Spirit, but in great assurance, verse 5, so much so that they became an open example for good to congregations in both Achaia and in Macedonia, verses 8 and 9. Can the same be said about Pippin? Are you and I, in our faithfulness and the way that we conduct ourselves, open examples of goodness to all congregations who may know of us? We certainly should be living in that way, operating in that fashion, for that was so commendable for Thessalonica. Notice in chapter 2, Paul touches their heartstrings by saying the dearness and the love with which he had labored amongst them. Notice that they were called to God's great kingdom in verse 12. But the means by which they learned of that kingdom in verse 13 was given in words like this. For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually also worketh in you that believe. Isn't it wonderful to read of a congregation like Thessalonica? They didn't seem to have the problems that the Corinthian church had. No doubt part of it was when they listened to the word, they didn't hear it just as the words of Paul or Silas, or others. It was God's word. When we listen to the word, may we hear it the same way they did. God is speaking to us. As that chapter closes, we find a thought that we will revisit in a moment in the closing verse to that chapter. But even at this point, let's go ahead and note the thread that ties all of 1 Thessalonians together. There was a question resting on the mind of the Thessalonians. It had to do with the Lord's second coming. They wanted to know, when is he coming back? What kinds of things will happen when he does? And that's the idea that's found in all five chapters of this book. 
In fact, in the closing verse to chapter 1, the closing verse to chapter 2, the closing verse to chapter 3, and the closing six verses of chapter 4, all those chapters end with a discussion of the second coming of Christ. May we perhaps note the high point of chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. They were concerned, you see, that if one had already passed away by the time the Lord returned, that that person would be absent some of the great blessings promised. Paul tried to put their mind at ease. He said, that won't be true, for we will all be resurrected. And he said, the dead in Christ shall in fact rise first. Note verses 15 and 16. And in so doing, there shall be three tremendous occurrences with respect to this. The great trump will sound, the voice of the archangel, and a great shout will take place. The dead in Christ shall rise first. We all shall rise to meet the Lord in the air, and we all shall ever be with him. Oh, what great comfort that must have given the Thessalonians. But might we never forget chapter 5, verse 2. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We do not know when that day will be. Hence, we must be ready, moment by moment and day by day. Chapter 5 closes by giving us some practical guidelines to make sure that happens. Abstain from all appearance of evil, verse 22. Prove all things and hold to that which is good, verse 21. Pray without ceasing, verse 17. You and I employ and implement those things in our life. We will be ready for the Lord's second coming. As with the saints of Revelation 22, we'll be able to shout, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Off to 2 Thessalonians we go. Only three chapters in this book. In the 2 Thessalonians letter, similar matters are addressed. The second coming of Christ. So that's an easy way to remember the key idea of both of these books. The 2 Thessalonians letter was written not long after the first one. It would appear no more than a few months. However, this chapter has a slightly different angle on the second coming. Chapter 1. Verses 7 through 9, the fiery conflagration will occur when the Lord does come. For those that are unprepared, to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Friend, it's urgent that we be ready. For those that have not obeyed the gospel will be forever separated from him. Why any possibility of ever changing that state? In chapter 2, Paul gives a lengthy discussion of the man of sin. Namely, he stated certain things would come to pass before the Lord does come back. This is the only set of events in all the New Testament given to us for description that state anything about certain things having come to pass. Now, the point to note is this. Have those things already happened by the year 2008 A.D.? Yes, they have. So at this point, we do not know from one day to the next what day the Lord may come back. The man of sin has already been revealed. The character of all the evil surrounding him has been shown. And verse 11 warns you and me still today, if we so choose, God will allow us to believe a lie and to be forever damned because of it. Oh, how serious then it is to study and rightly divide this book. For if we believe a lie... We may be forever lost because of it. Chapter 3 closes that book. Turn again to day by day. What does that mean for my life and yours? First of all, we should again pray that the gospel will have free course. Oh, to pray that it will find its way into the hearts and lives of men and women and transform them into what God would have them to be, verses 1 to 3. Not only that, it means that we should, as a church, realize the need to discipline those that are disorderly, verse 6. Withdrawing fellowship from those who choose not to walk orderly with the commandments of the gospel. If we do that, that will keep the church pure. In verse 10, may we ever understand we can't be ready. For did not Paul say man won't work, he ought not eat. That means not only working spiritually and physically to bring about in our lives what God would have us to do. For if we're busy that way, 
Satan will have less opportunity to infiltrate and idle. Their mind and hands won't be idle then. That chapter closes with another affirmation of the exceeding greatness of the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. We should strive to implement many things about the church in Thessalonica. Today, in our study of these four books, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, we've been reminded of some of the greatest truths in all the Bible. The joy we can have in Jesus. That joy is because Christ is at the center of our life. In the last two books, we look expectantly forward to the Lord's second coming, knowing there's nothing in this life that can compare to what it's going to be like there. Are you a Christian today, then? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have your sins been washed away by the blood of the Lamb? If not, these books, I hope, touched your life today and gave you an urgent sense of what you need to do this very morning. You need to become a Christian. And you don't need to delay. The Lord might come this afternoon, you know. He might come tonight. We don't know when. If you're not a member of the body of Christ today, but know that you need to be, the imitation hymn that we're going to sing in just a moment is especially to encourage you. We certainly can be appreciative of this fact. Many, no doubt, have uttered prayers on your behalf that you would have the time and the opportunity to realize that you need to make a change and that you would make it. Today, that prayer could be answered. If you have at some point become a Christian but have not walked faithfully, pleasingly unto God, Colossians 1.10, you need to make that right today. Come back to your first love. Brethren will be joyously happy to pray on your behalf. If we could help you today in either of these ways, would you not let it be known, even now while together we stand and while we sing?